Iki Publishing Media presents The Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 3, Facing Your Fears. I've noticed so frequently that luck is in the eye of the beholder. Gratitude should be experienced over the smallest convenience. But what if a single extra day of your life would be considered a convenience? Will you count yourself lucky to see the sun rising in the morning? It's certainly not a guarantee, and often a tall order to fill. Act 1. Nightmare on the Ben. Have you ever seen something you couldn't explain? Something that no one in their right mind would believe if you told them? It's been two years since I and my friends tried and failed to rob the castle treasury wagon. Though I've told no one of the event that took place on the Ben later that night, I've thought about it every hour of every day since. We were idiots, the four of us. Young, foolhardy, and dumber than a sack of oats. After we were roughed up by the palace guards who had been trailing the treasury wagon beyond the hill, the eight guards who'd outnumbered us surrounded us between several groves of trees. I thought they were going to run us through right then and there, but the guard captain ordered the group to leave the clearance so that the five of us could be alone. You foreknow we should cut your throats where you stand, but I've suddenly found myself with a problem that I don't know how to solve. Even though you stabbed my caravan driver, the guard captain growled at Ralph through gritted teeth, your sudden appearance does work into my favor. He stroked his black mustache as he looked between us. You're not going to tell our parents? Jacob asked. He was a brown-haired boy with a fair face. One of the guards had bent his useless excuse for a short sword in half. To his question, the guard captain laughed. No, of course not. I really don't think that will be necessary so long as you solve my little problem. It's just a simple task. What is it? Rayburn asked. He had bright red hair and giant forearms from working the fields with his father. He was the oldest of all of us and the reason why we were being punished by the guard captain. I need some able young men to climb the mountain yonder and dispose of the creature that's been growing into a bit of a nuisance of late. He drawled as though it were no big deal. I'm in, Rayburn said jovially, and then his tone and expression went dark. If you give us your guards weapons and armor. The guard captain considered the proposal. I suppose I could allow you to borrow a few long swords and shields, he said. That should have been my warning. I could have planned to leave the group and maybe I'd be able to get beyond the guard's reach and go into exile. But I'd never be able to return home. Why would the captain be so willing to part with his guard's equipment if the task wasn't dangerous? Four guards grudgingly handed their swords, shields, and helmets to us on the guard captain's orders. We were little more than kids. Teenagers who had practiced swordplay now and then who usually spent our days assisting our parents with the tilling of the fields. We would watch the guards upon their horses charge up and down the road outside our village. We had never used real steel swords and shields. The guards laughed at us as I, Jacob, and Ralph struggled to hold the adult weaponry upright. Rayburn shook his head and shouldered the longsword in its sheath. We all liked Rayburn. An intruder attacked his family in the night several months before the incident and Rayburn killed him with a wooden chair. Having taken another's life, regardless of how, that made him a bigger man than the three of us combined. I'll have several of my men follow you up the mountain trail in case you were thinking about running away. The guard captain sneered and sent three of his guards to trail us along the passage up the snowy treeless incline leading to the mountain's pinnacle. The afternoon was young, but a sea of darkened grey clouds hung over the sky like a drab curtain. You look foolish, Ralph. Rayburn jabbed him in the side with his scabbard. Pick yourself up and don't drag your sword, you're making us look bad. The guards chuckled behind us. A flash of lightning cracked through the sky overhead. 
Snow had begun to fill my boots and melt as we trudged uphill as if climbing our way to the storms brewing above. The seven of us came to a dead halt as the most terrifying roar filled the sky and surrounding fields. The sound was so loud that the echo reverberated through the heavens and thundered across the highlands. Ralph turned around and attempted to run, but one of the guards grabbed him before he could get away. There was no place to run. The mountain sloped in all directions like a giant dune upon the landscape. There were no cliffs leading up to the peak. Rayburn shook his head as he continued in the lead. Snow began to drift upon our faces and shoulders. I remember my fingers shaking to the point where I couldn't feel them. I couldn't tell if it was because I was cold or if I was terrified. The sound we had heard before filled the air once more and rattled us to the bone. Jacob began sobbing beside me. I was pretty sure all three of us had pissed ourselves by that time. You three are hopeless, Rayburn groaned. Keep moving! The gorge shoved us forward through the snow as we'd begun digging in our heels. We were like lambs marching to the slaughter. One of the guards hit Ralph so hard on the shoulder that he fell face first into the snow, which caused him to bite his lip. Rayburn drew the long sword from its scabbard and pointed it at the guard. Don't hit him again or only two of you will have the chance to walk back down that mountain. The guard who had pushed Ralph was about to lay into Rayburn, his hand reflexively moving toward his sword hilt. But the guard's friend grabbed him by the arm and shook his head. If I would have known what I knew now, I would have understood why spilling blood so early was a mistake. First-hand experience is a cruel mistress. We continued for another few minutes up the constant ascension of the mountain, slipping and sliding as our boots became waterlogged. My right boot was my dominant and it was already starting to fall apart from the sole. We passed by six metal helmets upon swords whose blades were punched through the snowy ground, making them look like crosses. That's when the guards told us we were to continue alone. Don't bother trying to sneak past us, one of the guards said. He loaded a bolt into a large crossbow that he'd strapped to one shoulder. Directing the crossbow at Rayburn, he motioned for us to keep moving. Shivering in the cold wind, the four of us inched up the hill toward the peak far above. Before we could leave sight of the guards, we heard them laughing and joking. This is all your fault, Rayburn, Ralph said. You were the scout. You were supposed to make sure the road was clear both ways before you gave us the signal to attack, Rayburn scowled. Guys, I don't think it matters whose fault it was, I said, ever the mediator between the four of us. I just want to go home and fall asleep by the fire, Jacob said quietly. Jeez, enough of you twits. Rayburn withdrew his longsword and jogged to the top of the hill as we clambered to follow. Rayburn stopped at the top of the mountain above. We thought he was waiting for us, but then he let out an agonizing howl that was extremely uncharacteristic of him. Before we could figure out what he was moaning about, a large black shape swam against the grey of the clouds and soared over us. The wind that followed nearly knocked me down, but I craned my neck to look behind me as the flying black creature glided down the mountainside toward the guards below. There was a cry from the men behind us, and then our faces filled with the glow of the fire that issued from the pointed black figure's muzzle. We could see it clearly as it set the guards ablaze, grappling a flaming figure with a twisted claw before snatching him in his long muzzle of a face. What we were looking at was the enormous shape of a black dragon with massive leathery wings. We couldn't see the guards' reaction, but they didn't stand a chance. The only logical conclusion we could make is that if they didn't stand a chance, then we surely didn't either. Run! Ralph screamed and jogged up the hill with renewed speed. Climbing the hill, Oi, Ralph and Jacob hurried past the still stark-faced Rayburn as the guards screamed in terror down the hill behind us. When we reached the top of the mountain, what greeted us was more unexpected than the ferocious flying reptile that was currently snacking on our guard captors below. Our faces filled with gold as we met the biggest hoard of treasure we had ever seen in our lives as serfs.
It was as though the monster had consumed and vomited a large fortune from the many different castles around the countryside. Holy! Ralph was suddenly picked up and hoisted into the air, his sword and shield tumbling to the ground below before a spray of blood scattered over us in the snow surrounding our position. The towering winged reptile was far more terrifying than any idea it concocted upon hearing that horrifying roar as we made our ascent. Rayburn looked at me, his eyes wide. His expression turned serious. Sorry. He sliced his sword from its scabbard and slid the blade along my thigh against my protests. I thought he was crazy before he pinned me down and coated the sword with my blood. Jacob watched all of this as the ground shook beneath us. The shadowy tower of the dragon's neck swam from the sky as Rayburn held the bloody sword high. The creature's razor-sharp teeth clamped down on Rayburn's wrist before severing the hand and sword from the body. Rayburn dropped from his lost hand and wailed in agony as the monster gulped and then began gasping desperately. A hail of stamping feet thundered around us as Jacob ran. I grabbed Rayburn and pulled him back to safety before the dragon's towering form could collapse and crush us under its gargantuan weight. It had swallowed Rayburn's sword and like a razor blade it shredded the monster's insides. Unable to believe our ungodly good fortune, Rayburn and I cheered and rejoiced before our loading our shields with as much treasure as we could fit in the bowl-shaped containers. Rayburn knew the mountain well and found a small cave for us to stash the gold. We go back for more, but the guards might catch us stealing. There was already enough money in the cave for us to retire for three lifetimes. We met Jacob halfway down the ban, sobbing at the hands of the guard captain and a score of his men before they forced the three of us to return to the peak. The guard captain laughed when Rayburn said that he had defeated the creature and sent the group of his soldiers with us to assess whether we were lying. The strangest sight met us at the top of the mountain, but it wasn't what we expected. The dragon was gone, and so was every last coin of treasure. All that remained was a massive pool of blood, bone, and the twisted remains of Rayburn's sword. Upon confirming our story, the guard captain sneered. He inevitably had no choice but to release us. The loss of Rayburn's hand was enough payment for having tried to rob the royal caravan. We were sworn to secrecy about the event, the usual threat of death if word got around that we'd been talking about what we saw. My story doesn't end there. I'm afraid it does somehow become darker. Rayburn and I had split the treasure three ways with Jacob. Even though he was a cowardly fool, he had still been there and witnessed what we had witnessed. He knew we weren't crazy. We could connect about something that no one else could. Rayburn drank his treasure away and ended up working for me with my mercantile shipping company almost 20 years later. It was a small operation, but even a small fortune can only take a young entrepreneur so far. Jacob, well, Jacob's story died with him when he mysteriously disappeared on a fishing trip with three other men. His shipmates claimed he was on the deck alone for a few minutes and when they came back up he was gone. One of the men claimed they saw blood washing back and forth on the deck with the regular bilge water, but his friends couldn't confirm that because it was nighttime when the event occurred. And now I come to the reason that I am writing this. I don't believe in the supernatural, but Rayburn believed we became cursed after we recovered the remains of that dragon's gold. The only reason he had joined my crew was because he believed my natural good fortune was in the eternal battle against the forces of evil, brought on by the specters of our greed. Must have told him a hundred times that the idea was nonsense. We were one of the smallest businesses in Scotland, our flag barely recognisable at each dock we moored upon. Oh, I never believed Rayburn, but now that he too has joined my close comrades, I'm having trouble carrying the weight of the secret alone. He always hated manning the crow's nest. I hated putting him there, but I had to visit my father in Ireland as his health had begun to fail. My crew was to continue to their next destination, but other captains aren't so lenient as me. I can imagine seeing Rayburn at the top of the crow's nest now, so drunk with a bottle of rum in hand that it was a miracle he hadn't climbed into the bottle and pulled the stopper in after him.
One of my men reported seeing a large shadow, hearing a sheepish scream, and then looking up to see that Rayburn was gone. No one ever saw him again. I'm not asking you to believe my story. It sounds crazier now that I've put it to paper, but it's my truth, and it's been my burden. I don't know what's to become of me, or why my friends were picked off by some unearthly mythological creature, but I do feel the closeness of my own death moving in on me, an impatience that knows no bounds, and is as depthless as the middle of the sea. Thank you for hearing my story. At least now I can rest in peace in my captain's quarters during this long journey to Belfast. My father saw his last day several weeks back. Well, I can only hope that tomorrow won't be mine. Act 2 Be careful when tinkering with spiritualism and personal development. Sometimes you uncover demons that ought not be uncovered. Facing your fears Bobby Woodward paced on stage as he looked out over the audience throughout the dimly lit event center. He wore a Sennheiser DW Pro 1 microphone around his ear, the microphone receiver pivoting to cover his mouth. Bobby had muscular forearms and a broad chest beneath his tight-fitting blue Ralph Lauren polo shirt that was tucked into his black slacks. As he looked out over the crowd, some of whom were crying, a few were jumping up and down excitedly and others trying desperately to pay attention to every word that came out of Bobby's mouth, he searched for someone. He was looking for an individual with a problem he could fix. Someone whose problem was so obvious that even they themselves didn't realize how much pain they were causing with each agonizing breath. Fear, Bobby Woodward stated. Fear is a son of a bitch. Fear is what prevents you from taking action. It cripples you. It might save your life, it might bring you wisdom, but it also might be the crux of what's preventing you from being happy. How many people know what wisdom is? Show of hands. He raised his own hand as dozens of hands from the crowd shot into the air. He continued, Wisdom is seeing a car speed around you on a narrow two-lane road and slowing down because you know there's a dip ahead and the kid in that silver Nissan Sentra doesn't know that he's about to hit a huge body of water, a spot that is widely known to the locals as a common low spot in the road where people often hydroplane and lose control of their vehicle. Wisdom is the experience because why? There was an inaudible response from the crowd, but Bobby didn't need to know what they murmured to finish his speech. That's right, you were once that kid in that silver Nissan Sentra. Wisdom is perspective. But fear of an accident is what causes you to implement that wisdom, and lack of fear is what causes the kid to do this reckless driving that might get someone killed if there weren't a humble people around to stay the course and make good decisions. This is why we have major car accidents on the roads, because there's such a huge gap between fear and a lack of fear in potentially dangerous situations. But Bobby, I hear some of you say, I'm a perfectly fine driver. What the hell does this have to do with my business? And the answer is that it has everything to do with your business. I'm not one of those fear and love guys, although you can easily categorize complex scenarios into a circumstance of fear or love. The reason I'm not going to spout a bunch of cliche bullshit at you guys is because love is a byproduct of what happens when you eliminate fear. You don't need to focus so much on the love because that's like the carbon dioxide of the air of confidence you'll have when you can not only understand your fears, but get down to the root of those fears. You can't even begin to give love until you till the solid grounds of fear into soil that will allow you to cultivate love. So let's dig deep. He turned and met the eyes of a man in his early 30s who was standing in the second row of the large event hall. The man was wearing a red polo shirt and blue jeans. Around his waist he wore a yellow fanny pack. He had thick plastic-rimmed spectacles and carried a permanent scowl upon his stoic expression. You! Bobby pointed directly at the man who suddenly showed shocked emotion at having been singled out as Bobby dropped off the stage and made his way through the crowd toward him. No, don't shake your head at me. You're going to tell me right now what scares you. 
One of Bobby's henchmen approached to bring a microphone to the man as he tried to hide behind his daughter, a girl with the man's same rounded face wearing similar glasses. She looked like she was about 19 or 20 and wore a white t-shirt and slacks. Just here for my daughter. The feedback from the microphone echoed through the speaker systems as one of Bobby's helpers got the microphone into his face. So you're here at this Conquer Your Fear conference. You paid for a seat. We've got another six hours to talk. What's your name? The man pushed the microphone away and tried to reason with Bobby, but Bobby shook his head. I don't care about your excuses. You're here and we're going to get to the bottom of this. You don't even realize what the problem is, but I saw it on your face from a mile away. Tell me your name, sir. Uh, the man rubbed his neck. His daughter's face had gone beet red. Dylan. Dylan Michaels. Dylan Michaels, Bobby said. You know, I don't always insist, but today I gotta insist. What's holding you back, Dylan? What do you do for a living? I'm a school teacher, Dylan answered. Beads of sweat began to break out on his forehead as the lights and cameras of the event centered on him. On giant television screens above the stage, his face was magnified and switching angles between him and Bobby with each exchange of information. A school teacher, Bobby wrinkled his forehead and smiled at him. What's your subject? History, Dylan said. Excellent. One of the only courses I didn't fail in high school. Bobby gave his infamous grin and clapped Dylan on the back. I love history. You know why? Because once history has been written, it gives you the chance to examine the past and figure out how to change. You can become better if you just look at your history. All right, Dylan. You know what I'm about to ask. Dylan shook his head as Bobby leveled with him. You're afraid of something, Dylan, and I need you to tell me what it is. I, uh, Dylan flared his eyebrows. I don't actually think I'm really afraid of anything, to be honest. Not afraid of anything? Bobby's eyes widened as he began to pace in front of Dylan. You. You're the perfect embodiment of business, of life, of all the best things in the world. No offense, but that's not what your expression told me earlier. No, maybe the big things don't scare you, but what's something little, something arbitrary? Dylan shook his head. You can't think of anything? Bobby asked exasperatedly and turned to the man's daughter. Is he always like this? She nodded, too excited to speak. You're a tough nut to crack, Dylan, but this needs to happen. I need you to tell me something that you do to this day that you don't even know why you do it. But something that you do in your day-to-day -day life that involves something you're terrified of. Stop shaking your head and take a second to think it through. Dylan pursed his lips as he blinked and thought. An idea came to him as he frowned. He said something that no one could hear before someone put the microphone back up to his face. I, uh, I'm scared to look in the mirror at night, answered Dylan. Excellent! Did everybody hear that? He just said he's scared to look in the mirror at night. That's terrifying! Bobby yelled. Everybody give this guy a hand. That took a lot of energy to say out loud. The whole room erupted with applause. Okay, now I need you to tell me why you're scared of looking in the mirror in the dark. Because I... Dylan trailed off, his eyes unnaturally wide. Go on! Bobby rolled his wrist. I'm not even sure. Dylan rubbed the side of his head as he stared into space. That's no good, but that's why we're here. We're popping the hood to see what's inside. You've probably never even wondered why you don't look in the mirror at night these days, but something must have happened when you were a kid most likely to trigger your insecurity about this action. We have no idea, but maybe this really is the only thing you're scared of and it's the only thing holding you back. Or maybe, more likely, this is just one thing that's holding a multitude of fears in place. Let's dig deeper. Tell me the real reason you're scared of looking into the mirror at night. When I was a boy, Dylan answered at last, my friends and I used to go into the bathroom and turn off the light on one another. Of course you did. Kids will be kids. Stuff happens. Go on, Bobby said. One time we, one time my friend Tom Kingsley said we should all 
play what bobby glared at dylan you mumbled that last part your friend tom kingsley said we should all do what he said we should all the microphone was amplified as he spoke too close to it but moved back to a more tolerable audio play bloody mary you know bloody mary Dylan gave a sheepish smile, becoming present for the first time that he was on about a dozen giant television screens around the event center. Yeah, I know Bloody Mary, Bobby shrugged. You say Bloody Mary three times in the dark and she comes out of the mirror and gouges your eyes out. All kids used to play Bloody Mary. Doesn't mean it's real. I mean, are you scared of Slenderman? Dylan laughed a little. No. You know why? Because Slenderman only came out within the last, like, 15 years. Bloody Mary's been around since before we were born. It felt like an old fear, but kids now are terrified of Slenderman because it feels older than them. Bloody Mary is just as silly. Dylan shook his head, but Bobby cut him off. I think this might be a superstition that stuck with you over the years and you never bothered to correct it. If you want to start telling the land to cultivate love, the first thing you're going to have to do is go home and stand in front of that mirror. Don't just stand there at 8pm and mumble to yourself like a baby. You take the fight straight to the devil's doorstep at 3.15 in the morning and you shout it. You beckon that scary lady to come at you, but Dylan, nothing's really going to happen when you do that. The mirror is a physical object. It's not a portal to another dimension that's meant to house and entertain some girl who's just waiting on the other side for someone to say her name a bunch of times. Can you imagine? Bobby grinned as he looked out over the crowd, looking for his next target. She hears you start saying her name once, then twice. What if you only say it two times? Does she get pissed off and sit back down? A murmur of laughter floated through the fans. No, Dylan, I know this seems really silly now, but I think this whole mirror thing might be a big problem of why you're scared to create that history documentary that's been floating around in the back of your mind for the last ten years. Or that history book, you know, The Great and Ancient World by Dylan Michaels, something, anything, everything. I need you to train yourself to walk by and look in the mirror without any feeling at all any time of day. Bring a knife, or hell, bring a gun if you have one. Confront this fear head-on by going into the bathroom, saying the name three times in the dark, and then realizing just how silly and unfounded this sensation really is. Good luck, buddy. I'll have someone check in on you in a week to make sure you're okay. Bobby embraced Dylan as he grinned and smiled, his face just as beet-red as his daughter's. Bobby parted from Dylan to move on to a sobbing young woman as his henchman with the microphone followed him. The conference continued smoothly throughout the day. Once the event had ended, the patrons began filing out of the event center as the inspirational music slowly faded. Dylan Michaels was wide awake at 2.55 in the morning after the conference. He had never been so terrified as he was right now. Bobby Woodward's advice swirled in his mind as Dylan recalled memories he hadn't thought about in years. He remembered Brent and Charlie and the school around the block from his house. He remembered Amber Alerts, finding out where all the local child molesters lived so he could avoid those parts of the neighborhood. He remembered getting lost and wondering if he would ever see his house again. But mostly, he remembered the girl in the mirror. He thought of when he and Charlie cut the lights on Brent while he was in the bathroom stall and snickered as Brent yelled, Why you little? The infamous 90s catchphrase of Homer Simpson. He thought of the afternoon when Charlie, Charlie with his nervous twitch of crooking his head in different ways and saying uh-huh regularly, had left him in front of the child molester's house on Sunset Drive. He remembered the big church daycare where they all met, and how after Dylan bit one of the boys during a fight, his parents pulled him out and made him stay home during the summers from then on. And the bathroom of that church is where his fear of Bloody Mary was born. The boys had dared one another to cut the lights and stand next to one another in front of the mirror as they chanted the name. Dylan hadn't made it through the second voicing of Bloody Mary before ducking out through the door as the boys cackled at his cowardice. 
When it was his turn to have the lights cut on him while he was in the middle of a dump one morning, Dylan struggled to finish and wipe his ass as he swore he heard movement from inside the room. Pulling up his pants, Dylan tore from the bathroom stall and saw a pair of glowing red eyes in the mirror. He found out later that it was the reflection of the red light from the electrical outlet, but good luck getting an eight-year-old kid to believe that. He swore to his friends that he saw that dead girl in the mirror, and fake as it was, it had manifested itself as a real image. Somehow, being a witness made them forget what a chicken shit he was, and his buddies told him ludicrous stories and lore, like how if you cleaned your room, Bloody Mary would come out of the floor, or that now that someone had witnessed her, she would come for them all. What a joke. Bobby Woodward was right. This fear had gone on for long enough, and it was time to put it to bed for good. Even 24 years later, Dylan felt like a chicken shit as he put his feet down on the icy floor and stared at the closed bathroom door at the opposite side of his single-bedroom apartment. After Kara went to college two years ago, his wife had called it quits and divorced him. She was now married to a man who owned a gym, a man who was the polar opposite of Dylan Michaels in every possible way. Sitting there, looking at the closed restroom door that was closed as a byproduct of his childhood imaginary fear, he couldn't blame her for leaving him. He was a chicken shit after all. Not today I'm not, growled Dylan. He grabbed the kitchen knife he had kept behind the box spring and mattress that was his bed. He hadn't bought a bed frame and didn't anticipate he'd ever need to. Dylan got to his feet and balled his fist as he carried the knife to the closed bathroom door. The light from the parking lot of the apartment complex shined through his bedroom window, stretching a beam of fluorescent orange light across the wall. Bobby Woodward had suggested that Dylan confront this imaginary monster in the dead of night at 3.15 in the morning. 3 in the morning is considered the true witching hour, contrary to many people believing the witching hour to be midnight. Anyone familiar with horror lore will see that the worst part of a haunting or terrifying supernatural situation takes place the moment 3 o'clock in the morning begins. It's because it's the opposite time to the moment Jesus gave up his mortal spirit to God during the crucifixion. It's also when prayers are rarest and the melatonin in the sleeping body is strongest. What did any of that have to do with Bloody Mary? Not much, but what did Bloody Mary have to do with anything at all? Bobby Woodward was absolutely right, though. Dylan's habits had revolved around a regular process meant to shield him from a chance encounter with a supernatural terror that made little to no sense. How much had fear limited him in life? Dylan pushed open the bathroom door and stood in front of the mirror. It was a narrow restroom for the single-bedroom apartment that was his life outside of his schoolwork. When you're a teenager, getting a one-bedroom apartment is the dream, but when you're in your early 30s and divorced, occasionally hearing your 24-year-old neighbor having sex with his girlfriend through the wall on Saturday nights, it was less of a nightmare and more of a sobering reality. He ignored his natural reflex to flick the lights on in the dark, and that's when the terror set in. His blood went ice cold and he suddenly very much wanted to abandon this whole venture. Was there anything wrong with being afraid to look in the mirror? It was a simple matter of keeping the demons at bay. But then he imagined what Bobby Woodward would say. If Bobby Woodward was standing behind him, he wouldn't let Dylan leave that bathroom without finishing the fight. Dylan swallowed hard and raised his eyes to himself in the mirror. The restroom and bedroom behind him was lit for the most part by the streetlight shining through the window. He licked his lips and gripped the knife tightly as if he might bring it down upon some intruder. Without looking at anything in particular, he began to recite the words. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, he whispered. Nothing happened. He just stood there in the dimness for a few seconds before it dawned on him that he had broken form and was in new territory. He had conquered the old fear, exposed the thorn from the ancient wound. A hand clapped on his shoulder and it was the imaginary form of Bobby Woodward. What on earth was that? Get in there and yell it! Make the neighbors hear! 
but Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Dylan punched the plastic countertop as he glared at the mirror. Shout it, Bobby goaded. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. The streetlight behind him and every other light in the apartment complex went out all at once, throwing Dylan into sudden darkness. The light flickered back into existence and that's when fear iced through Dylan's insides. A woman in her mid-twenties wearing a white dress that was stained with black smears stood behind his reflection. Blood poured from her nose, eyes, and ears. The black hair plastered to her neck and shoulders looked sweaty and knotted as her jaw dropped to an impossibly black yawn. A scream that made his heart seize in his chest was the last thing he heard. His eyes rolled into the back of his head before he collapsed behind the toilet. The black shape picked up the knife from the tiled floor. Dylan was completely immobile as the girl with the horrifying face towered over him. Her jaw dropped to that ghastly yawn. He tried to raise his hands to defend himself, but she was too fast. That horrifying shriek of a scream filled his mind as he struggled against supernatural demonic strength. He gave a final agonized groan of protest before the girl sank the knife into his heart. Dylan blinked and she was gone. Blood pouring from his lips, Dylan withdrew the knife from his breast and tried to get up but couldn't. His body trembled uncontrollably as he grabbed the doorframe to the restroom and hauled himself to his phone by the edge of his bed. With a shaky hand, he picked up his smartphone and when he looked in the black reflection of the phone, she was standing behind him. Turning around, he saw no one. Pressing the phone button without looking at its reflective face, he turned on the phone and tried to call the police but there was too much blood on his fingers for it to work properly. When he finally got it, he wheezed to a 911 operator that he needed help. He was already dead by the time they arrived, a look of sheer terror on his face as he lay against his bed on the bloody carpet. This concludes episode 3 of the Apocalypse Theater podcast. What makes a person evil enough to want to hurt women and children? What makes a person evil enough to leave innocence by the wayside to champion a system that will generate more income? What makes a person evil enough to consider destroying the world? If you ask these questions for long enough, you'll start to see that the minds behind those dark acts believe that they were the hero of their own story. I tell these stories partially for your entertainment, but also as cautionary tales. Tune in each month for new episodes, stay safe, and watch out for the mirrors. I'm sure there's no real reason to be afraid of them, but you never know. Have a safe, happy, and productive week. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and voiced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. You can also purchase my books and audiobooks in the future. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2018.